Hello and welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, along with my co-host, the creator of the show, Mr. Tom Jokic. Hey, Christopher. Tom, yep. it's a rock and roll special today. We have two great singers, one of them from the UK and one from Canada. <laughs> Who I know very well. You certainly do. You dated Rod Stewart for a while, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking about uh, Rod. We're talking about Rod Stewart and Alana Miles, and of course, Rod has an incredible history. He's still going, and uh, these interview clips are interesting. And Christopher, you even told me we can't run some of these clips; they're a little bit too vulgar because this is during Rod's late seventies glam period, and some of the stuff he says is actually kind of. Gross. And we actually had to take quite a bit of it out, but there's still enough of the really good stuff in here. And some of it is very self-aware, and he's reminiscing about his time in the faces, but he's also taking a few shots at people. In fact, there's three episodes of When Rock Stars Attack in the Rod Stewart segments alone. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I got to say, I'm very curious about a couple of segments as to whether they will remain or not. <laughs> That's right. You're going to have to listen. I leave it in your capable hands, sir. Right. You're going to have to listen to the finished product of this show to find out what yeah. I kept in and what I didn't. And of course, the other person we're talking about is Alana Miles. Alana, a great vocalist and also a major person in your own life. Where do I begin? <laughs> um, yeah, Alana and I are very good friends. We had a, a long-standing uh, creative partnership that resulted in great success for both of us. And mm -hmm. I mean, I think the stories of our lives would be very, very different without the other person. Absolutely. And you know, I told you about this interview several months ago, and I said, we just have to run this because it's so interesting. Alana has a real way of speaking. It's, it, there's, a very, there's a lot of pride and there's a lot of fierceness in the way she speaks. But when she talks about you, she speaks fiercely and with love about you and i found that really interesting and it's great to hear and i can't wait to play it for everyone so let's get started first with rod stewart tom listening back to vintage interviews with rock royalty we laugh we're amazed and we wince in equal measure <laughs> now rod has cultivated his image shrewdly through i think a 50 plus year career tacking all the way from brat to crooner as his music evolved along the way mm -hmm. This interview is classic Rod, not taking anything seriously, but still shrewdly affirming his commitment to rock and roll. There are some cringe-worthy moments, for sure, but you know what? Let's leave them in, and with a reminder to remember the context. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the interview, by the way, sometimes I think the interviewer has to take responsibility for the direction of the conversation as well. Sure, absolutely. Now, we're not going to hear the interviewer in really any of these clips because they weren't included in them. Now, I just want to put this into actual context. This is upon the release of Footloose and Fancy Free, either late 77 or early 78. In this first clip, Rod talks about his brand new band. Well, I've got a band now. That makes all the difference, surely. Got my own band together. That's the first time I've had that luxury. You know, unless they get a bit lethargic like the faces did, then I'll uh, disband them and form another band. Because I don't believe you can keep a band together more than three or four years. I've come to that conclusion now. I think there's a lot of bands in England now that should be broken up. They've been together too long and they're stale. I mean, this was like a breath of fresh air for me. You know, after being with Woody and Mac and Kenny and all the boys for six years, or however long it was, to have new musicians about, brings out different sides in you. And that's what I want to keep doing. So if this band falls below par, she'll break it up. <laughs> so 
So any band is only good for a few years, and boy, oh boy, you can tell that he didn't miss the faces at that point. No kidding. Mm. But I, I, the concept of a band having a best before date is weird to me. Yes, for sure. I mean, because I think bands like the Rolling Stones, they, I mean, I don't want to say they just keep getting better and better, but I mean, once they lock into that familial groove, I mean, it's a thing of beauty. Yeah, for example, Christopher, just a few weeks ago we were talking about Bob Seger and at the age of 31, how he didn't think he was even going to make it to the age of 35 as a performer. So a lot of those 60s era artists didn't really think beyond their mid-30s as far as viable professional musicians. It's really quite interesting. Well, rock and roll was a burnout profession, let's Mm -hmm. face it. Mm -hmm. So it's not so surprising that they would think, well, there is a best before date here. So the interview here turns to image making. And Rod kind of surprises with his reaction to some of what was done in his name. And you're talking about something like the, the, the uh, album cover for Night on the Town. I mean, it's, it's, I hate it. I hate it. I really do. And the film clips I did for Georgie and Tonight's the Night. Yeah, I wasn't aware of it at the time, you know. I wasn't aware of it. But on reflection, I mean, it's, it was a painful era. Um, but I don't know what brought it on. Um, perhaps it was Brit. You know, being around Brit all the time. And she is of a different class. Wow, that Night on the Town album cover. He's embarrassed by it. That's really interesting. And he hates the Hollywood glam image, and he didn't really realize he was in the middle of it um, until afterwards, looking back, and he kind of blames Britt Eklund, his girlfriend at the time, uh, <laughs> actress and model, uh, for that whole thing. That's really interesting. So did Rod still think he was working class at that point? Yeah, as I've often said, you know, a leopard can never change its spots. Once you're working class, mate, you're working class, and that's the end of it. He's remarkably candid about the good and the not-so-good things about the faces. Well, the first... How long were we together now? We started in 70, I think we broke up in 75. The first three years were heaven. I mean, we shared everything. We shared, well, we shared every, didn't share our women, but we shared everything, the boys. We all knocked about together. Woody and I were the closest of pals, and we still are, you know, don't get me wrong. But towards the end, it was, it was very bitter. You know, Mac, McLagan especially hated me. He still does, I think. Ronnie Lane left the group because he was getting fed up with just getting up and playing every night. Um, he was getting fed up with touring. And I think that's when the faces started to split up, because I think Ronnie Lane was the faces more so than Woody on myself. I think Ronnie stood for everything that we wanted to be. He was the drinker, he was the complete lunatic in the band. And me and Woody were close to second and third. Perhaps I sound a bit bitter, I shouldn't really. I'd, you know, sometimes I'd rather forget about it, but obviously a lot of people are interested. Oh, wow, so it was very bitter at the end. He said Mac hated me and probably still does. And of course, he's talking to Ian <laughs> McLagan. He was a big player in the Rolling Stones, and he was in The Small Faces, and that's interesting that they just could not stand each other. Well, there's a lot of blaming going on. He Mm. talks about the faces and why they boozed so much. When the faces first started back in 70, we just played to guys all the time. We used to have just blokes in the audience, you know, never any girls. Hmm. The first time we ever played with the faces, we played a place called the Savoy Ballroom in London. There was more people on the stage than there was in the audience. 22 people we had in the audience, and there was about 30 on the stage, including the road crew. And that's why we started drinking so much. Christ, lads, we can't go on sober. There's nobody in the audience. And so we took to the bottle in no uncertain fashion. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) That's That's a good one, though. It is. Well, the faces certainly lived up to that image, didn't they? In the old days, the faces we used to drink all day. By seven o'clock, we was all dead beat like this. 
because it came to a point that, that we were living up to what people expected of us, you know, being very drunk all the time and out of our skulls. We really were. Oh, man. Christopher, I am currently reading the autobiography by Slash, and I got to tell you, as bad as the booze was for these guys, the drugs were really bad on Slash and his buddies <laughs> during the late 80s and early 90s. I'm amazed they lived through it. Yep, absolutely. It's interesting Rod looks back and he talks about the struggling times and missing them or not. To be totally honest with you, no, I don't. I don't miss them at all. It was horrible trying to make it. I mean, the, the, what made those days so memorable is that you weren't aware that you were trying to make it. None of us were aware of the fact that we were trying to make it. We were very sincere in what we were doing and we were just playing music. None of us wanted to become particularly wealthy or well-known. I think we wanted to become well-known, but not to the extent of even coming to America. That was unheard of. There was a, there was a lovely innocence about it when we all first started with the faces. We were very much more into each other than we were into a, accomplishing anything on a musical basis. Well, that's interesting. So what he says there, he's basically, he says he hated it, he doesn't miss it, but he also says there was a lovely innocence about it all. Well, he has some thoughts on the Stones, mm-hmm. and specifically Ron Wood's involvement with the Stones. And now we present When Rock Stars Attack, Rod Stewart, Part 1. <laughs> Go, Rod. Woody and I are still good pals. I don't believe he's amongst the right uh, hands now. I mean, I think he's terribly influenced by Keith. In the, bad, in the worst possible way. He's always idolised Keith, he always did, you know. And now I always think, although they play well together, and I haven't even seen them, but I've heard they play well together, I always think he's a second best, you know. And I don't know whether they're going to be working anymore, and I'd really like him to do something on his own. But he's wasting so much time, you know. Time slipping by, and every time I talk to him, I say, why don't you do something positive on your own? But he says, yeah, I'll get around to doing it. And oh, man. Keith Richards has a bad influence. Oh. Really? <laughs> He's wasting so much time, he says, about Ronnie in the Stones. Wow. Well, some more cynicism follows about the Stones. Hang in. I was under the impression that Mick was after him as long as, you know, when Mick Taylor first left, I thought, well, obviously he's going to come after Woody. But he didn't. And uh, me and Woody sat down and used to talk about it. And he said, uh, my first lie is the faces. And I believed him. On the last tour, we sat down and we was actually going to form our own group, Woody and I, and go out on our own. We often talked about that, but it never materialized. Here he talks about how the music reflected his personal life. I mean, that slow side is a total slow side. I mean, it's so bloody depressing. That whole of that slow side is really a reflection of the, the, the thing I was going through with uh, You Know Who. And uh, it's, a lot of it's reflected on the album, on that slow side. It's, there's a lot of... I mean, if I, I listen to it now, and it's, it's, for want of a better word, it's very depressing. But then that's an emotion, and that's all you want out of a record. When if you if you make a record, you want an emotion. You want you want a reaction from somebody, whether it be happy, sad, or indifferent. You must have some reaction. Because so there was a reviewer in England. She said, "Oh, every time I put the sad side on, she's the slow side." She called it the sad side, right? Every time I put the sad side on, I feel so depressed. I said, "Why?" You know. Well, I've just lost my lover. I said, well, that's it. That's what that slow side's all about. Don't you understand? That's what I was going through. You know, I hadn't lost her. I mean, I, I blew it because I'd done the, the unnecessary thing. So what did he get caught doing? Oh, boy. Well, I just, just got caught out. I'm sure you know about it. I'd got away with it for so long, and all of a sudden I got caught. And she wasn't pleased. And I don't blame her. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, um, like this, this, okay. This is my favorite moment. Well, I have to tell you. I got to tell you, the last moment was my favorite moment. Holy smoke. Well, wait for the next one because he talks about the song You're In My Heart and how it combines his love of women and soccer. <laughs> for real. What? This song has caused a great deal of speculation because everybody thinks it's about Brit. But in actual fact, the first verse is about somebody else entirely different. It's not about Brit. There are three verses in there which are about the lady in question. And the choruses are really sort of dedicated to Scotland, you know, and Scottish football. If you're British, and many British men can love soccer as much as they do their wife or their woman. But the whole idea of this song is to try and bring that to light, you know. It's, it, the song is understood in Great Britain. I don't think many people understand it here because there's a reference there to two British soccer teams, Glasgow Celtic and Manchester United. Uh, it says you're Celtic, United, and baby, I've decided you're the best team I've ever seen. Celtic, United, but baby, I've decided you're the best team I've ever seen. What I'm trying to say is you can love soccer as much as you can a woman. Obviously, one gives you a lot of physical relief, but the thing is you can be in love with the two of them. Anyway, that song is not entirely dedicated or about Brit Eklund. It's uh, a couple of verses are but uh, the rest of it is not. I'm waiting for a bell to ring, you know, a bell to tell you, because I've never felt that about anybody. That includes Brit or anybody I've known. I've never felt that about anybody. I'm waiting for some bell to ring, you know. Like, ding! Oh, this is the one. In my heart, you're in my soul. You'll be my breath should I grow old. You are my lover, you're my best friend. You're in my soul. This is an interesting clip. He talks about live performance and how it's still ultimately the test of how good a singer you are. I want to prove that I'm a good singer. I want people to look upon me as I used to look upon Otis, someone that could really touch them from a distance. Or Dylan. Dylan can touch people from a distance through his records. And I think one way of proving this is, is by a live performance. If you can bring 18,000 people together as one unit, like a small club, I think you've achieved the goal. Now, I love the fact that he refers to Bob Dylan as a great singer. That's because right. there are a lot of people who will dispute that notion. Right. And getting on stage, even at this stage of his career, was still kind of a risky business for Rod. Those first five stairs when you're going up to go onto the stage and can hear them, it's like going up before a guillotine, you know, because you don't really know the outcome. Well, if you're in the guillotine, you know you'd be dead. But you, that's what's great about it. You never know what the outcome's going to be. Even though you think you're good, you try and tell yourself you're good, you've still got to go out there and prove yourself. That's what keeps me ticking, I think. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? The five steps to the stage, and you never know what's Mm -hmm. going to happen. You never know the outcome. And I imagine that a lot of artists, they don't quite know, especially if they've been away for a while. You know, you talk about an artist like, let's say, Phil Collins, who's back on tour after all this time. Going back out there, he must think, A, do I have it? And B, do they still care out there? It's really interesting what they would have to face after all that time. Rod's introduction to American audience was not what you'd think. When I first came to America, which was uh, 69 with Jeff Beck, I was totally paranoid about coming over here because I was wrapped up in the fact that I had to sound like a black man. Yeah. I'm singing the blues, so I had to sound black, right? Which was okay if you're in London, you can get away with it. But when we got on that flight, the TWA flight to bring us over here, I thought, God, they're going to throw bottles at me. I mean, this is like taking coals to Newcastle, if you understand. <laughs> 
you just don't do it. You don't go over there, thin white kids start singing the blues when they've got Muddy Waters in Chicago and Sonny Boy and all the everybody, Howlin' Wolf. And that's why I hid behind the amplifiers, the first Jeff Beck concert at the Fillmore West, Fillmore East in New York. I was totally stage struck for the first time, and that was the last time in my life. The curtain opened, and we did our first number, which I think was um, Rock My Plimp Soul. Okay. Uh, I couldn't sing, so I ran behind the amplifiers, and half a bottle of scotch, I think, in about 10 seconds, and I was all right. That's a true story, though, because a lot of people don't believe it. I sang from behind the amps like this. <laughs> wow. How daunting was mm-hmm. it for him that he had to hide behind the amps and drink half a bottle of scotch before he had the nerve to turn around and face the audience. <laughs> yes, it was forced upon him, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, of working with Jeff Beck, he has some very candid things to say about his boss in the Jeff Beck group. I've said some, some fairly wicked things about Jeff, I must admit, because... I think me and Woody put a lot of our time and energy into that band and didn't get, not so much paid, that isn't what you really want, but the thing is we didn't get, um, I mean, take that first album, Jeff had a picture of his old lady on the back instead of us, you know? I think that counts a lot. We wanted to be on the back of that album. Well, I was going to say, the guy has changed totally now, totally the opposite. You couldn't wish to meet a more pleasant man. We were down in Australia, when he was in Australia, he was playing a little place to a couple of thousand people. We were going to play at 35,000 the night after. And I went down to see him, and he was great. I mean, really? it was a complete change of events. The singer that used to be in his band is now much, ten times bigger than he'll ever be. And he took it like a gentleman. I admire him for that. He was great. He's a, he's a really sweet guy now. He used to be a right <coughs> in the old days. I don't think he realized what he had at the time. But as I say, the guy is A1 now, different class. Here's a segment that, that you maybe want to run or don't. <laughs> Um, in this one, Rod has perhaps more than necessary to say about the Hollywood lifestyle as he experienced it. See, I took an incredible amount of knocking when I moved to Hollywood, especially in Great Britain. I mean, I really took a lot of knocking. I'd gone off with a film star and gone to Hollywood. And the sad thing about it is most of the people that criticize Hollywood have never been here. You know, they still think it belongs to the film world, whereas I, I say every time, I mean, Hollywood is, belongs to rock and roll now. It's the finest rock and roll town in the world. I could never have written like, songs like Hot Legs and You're Insane unless I'd have been living here, because it's total chaos and madness. And that's, that's why I love the town so much. So he claims he hates the glam image, but you can tell that he absolutely revels in the debauchery and activity of life in Hollywood. That's great and disturbing stuff from Rod Stewart. <laughs> the Hyatt House, no, known as the Riot on Sunset. Oh, really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Great stuff. Rod Stewart on Famous Lost Words. Christopher, let's turn back the clock. This must be really weird <laughs> to talk about yourself in the context of your life and career as it pertains to Atlanta Miles. Go ahead. Well, I'd never heard this clip before. Mm. And it was, yeah, it was like a message in a bottle. It was, it was odd. I mean, it's strange just even introducing a segment that has to do with someone that I lived and worked with and know so well. I mean, I had by far my greatest success as a songwriter with Alana's version of Black Velvet. For sure. But we worked, I should tell you, we worked for about six years steadily on her career, writing and recording songs while she formed band after band. And um, I pitched our work to label after label, receiving the same word in reply, no. Oh, wow. But when she hit the jackpot, she was ready. 
She had fully developed her style as a vocalist and performer. She had listened to everything and loved great songs in whatever genre, from Fleetwood Mac to Billie Holiday. So, in an interview before she broke in McLean's, she said, the songs I wrote for her were a cross between ACDC and Leonard Cohen. <laughs> Not too high a standard to have that's, to live up to, huh? That's great. And she does... That's um, like the, the highest compliment, right? That is true. And, you know, she does speak very highly of you in this interview, and that's probably my favorite part of the interview. Uh, but it's just great to hear, that's for sure. Well, in the interview, Tom, she refers to not wanting to play to six people in a bar. But ironically, that's exactly what she was doing the first time I saw her, mixing in her own songs with, you know, covers by Linda Ronstadt and others. We're still friends. We have lots to laugh about and lots to be proud of. So, Christopher, let's just put this in chronological order for our audience. So you and Alana met when you were both quite young, and you were together as a couple for the better part of a decade, even before her first album came out. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, on our first date, she invited me in. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which was exciting, yeah. to play some of her songs for me. So, I mean, you know, the die was cast right from day one, really. And it didn't take long. I mean, we continued to date, but it didn't take long before we started, you know, working on songs together and then making demos together. And that led to about six years of artist development, I guess that's what they call mm-hmm. it. Right. And um, the odd part of the story for some is the fact that uh, we broke up while we were making the album. Mm-hmm. And I, I, we stayed in the same neighborhood. So instead of leaving from the same house to go to the studio every day, I would just pick her up on the way. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that is fantastic. You know what? It was fine. I mean, we yeah. were such good friends that it just made it so much easier to get past all of that. That is awesome. Okay, so then let's go back to circa 1990-91 and Alana Miles in conversation with Roger Bartel. This is really interesting. I know you're happy to finally be on the road again because I know it's something you enjoy more than making records is playing to people live on stage. Absolutely. And the last three years of your life have rather been Absolutely. consumed in the studio. Yeah, well, so. it, by choice because I was uh, bound and bent to make a record that um, would warrant me getting out in front of larger audiences, not just six people people in a bar that was really my goal i i really very much want to perform for people it's a lot of fun for me mm-hmm. so it's kind of nice that it's all come together and it's now finally happening did you have to fight a lot to get people to pay attention to you uh, when you Tooth started and nail. yeah absolutely but it makes it more rewarding as they say well that's right? what christopher tells me when i get bitter about someone you know that person thinks i'm you know pretty hot stuff now and they just thought i was crap before and he's and and he says well you know doesn't it make you feel better that you had to work that much harder to earn their respect and i say no it doesn't, because there are people that were very kind to me and believed in me before, and uh, perhaps one of those people of the thousands I thanked on the back of my record jacket that are still with me now and say, I knew you could do it all along. That kind of positivity I can live with. Does it make you nervous at all that perhaps this album is being claimed by certain music groups, say Kerrang! magazine, giving it a great review and a lot of the Yeah, but they can turn rock... around and, and crap on it the next day, the very next day. Well, you know, you know what I mean, though, that, that, that maybe uh, a legion of heavy metal fans mm-hmm. are looking towards you to to be the next, say, metal queen, and that might, uh, say, the next album. I've heard that, you, you know, you're interested in doing country and western at some point in your career. <laughs> I um, am, I am. Is that but quite... I want to, I feel I have a lot more rock and roll to get across to my, my audiences before I make artistic decisions like that, rash artistic decisions. I don't think that's fair to do a rock and roll album that people really enjoy and then go out and perform like a banshee and like a top 40 foot That's what Neil Young has done columns. for years. Sometimes it works for him, sometimes it doesn't. Well, I'm I mean, not Neil know. Young. I'm a, I'm a rock and roll performer and I don't want to discourage my fans. I want to give them what they expect Hmm. and perhaps a little bit more. And then 
when I've had all that, when I've got a few records under my belt and I've had an opportunity to perform for people, you know, if I'm if I'm so chosen to be to be given that opportunity mm-hmm. and that's come to me, then I would think about doing a serious artistic, you know, something for Alana, something for my own peace of mind, which is to do beautiful country songs that I've written and perhaps some that Christopher has written and other very classic songs that other songwriters have written specifically for my voice to sing. So that maybe when you're like Loretta Lynn's age, you'll do Loretta Lynn type songs? No, probably before then. Yeah? Yeah, probably before then. I, I mean, I can't see it happening very soon, you know. But I mean, I, I love the Tennessee Waltz. I wish I could do it in my live show, but that's really like putting the... It's too much soft music in a show. you gotta, you got to hit them over the head with rock and roll uh, to, to really get them, get them going. Mm-hmm. And later on, we'll do the indulgent stuff, you know, when people know who I am. But right now, I think they have to discover who I am. Mm. And I'm prepared to do that. Let's talk about, uh, can we talk about Christopher for a bit? Of course we can. Christopher Ward was instrumental in all this as a, a creative partner, as a Absolutely. producer, uh, lending financial support, and mm-hmm. a domestic companion as well. Can mm-hmm. we call him that? Well, no, he's not. He's not a domestic companion oh. of mine. We're partners. Uh, partners. Mm-hmm. I would, to be honest with you, because I'm not a very, I'm not a dishonest person, uh, we were uh, a domestic couple for uh, nine years, when, ever since I was quite young. But uh, we actually have not been for probably year and a half now mm. it's been strictly business with us and and there's a strong love between us that that um that this project has allowed to you know become very fledgling and, and just, just to carry through with our music and i think it shows in the music that mm-hmm. you know there was no love lost uh, over um you know the, mm-hmm. the music aspect what we do uh- Oh, that you know, that's that reminds me of Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart were uh, reminds us of them too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for <laughs> a long, hope, long time. Oh, let's hope the other half of the story does too. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting, but you know, sometimes a couple is together, and they discover that it's not working out for them in personal reasons, but they've just developed this very strong kinship and love. And um, Christopher, I've invited him in, and instead of being the egomaniac that one could be when they're given the success that I'm given. Um, I could say, okay, now this is my show, but that's not the way I do things. I believe in teams, mm-hmm. and I don't believe I could have done this without him. I'm very proud of what we do. I'm very proud of working with Christopher Ward, and I'm very proud of his songwriting. When I first saw that video, it was, it was hard for me to tell whether or not you were actually pouting for the camera or if it was sort of a tongue-in-cheek uh, look at the sensual side of video, and I decided upon further, video that it, uh, further viewing rather that it was the latter. Uh, I'd have to agree with you. I don't think I pose. If I do... Uh, it's it's in the eye of the beholder because I'm not a poser. I'm a no, a no bull type of person, and that carries on through to my style of performance. Whereby, I am a woman's woman. I love men, but I'm a woman's woman, and I will always support, you know, uh, the dignity of woman's sexuality mm-hmm. and not flaunt the sexuality to disgust women. I try and do it so that women feel, hey, I can do this too. Because it's sexy, and if it's posing, I've had people accuse me of you know, ha- um, you know, being a sex symbol and all this crap. And I think, well, you know, if you feel that way about it, well, then I've done my job. But I didn't set out to do that. If I happen to be sexy, then lucky me. But I'm basically just performing. And you're you're real conscious of that, aren't you? Because every interview that I've uh, read or heard with you, you've mentioned the fact that, uh, about trying to present the woman's side of things. Absolutely. Thing in all of I this. think it's important because I think too many women in rock and roll have gone out there and let their, their boobs fall out of their bras and have really set women back about 
10 years in what they have to say lyrically and what they have to say visually. And I think it's very important that I come along and maybe change a couple of things. And if I've given any kind of notoriety in order to do this, I will, I will put women on the map in terms of rock and roll with being able to have balls, but femininity at the same time. Wow, there you go. Alana Miles and Roger Bartell on Famous Lost Words from 1990-91. It's amazing how fiercely loyal she is to you, Christopher, and how fiercely strong-willed she is about the people who both support her and who don't. And I can see how you would have been a great champion of hers, um, but also kind of a good leveling out person to have on her team. You know, we have an interview with her from a few years later, and she's very displeased at the music industry as a whole. But we can't forget that she was a woman, a strong woman, in a male-dominated recording industry. And remember the garbage that was thrown Madonna's way in the 1980s? Well, I imagine mm-hmm, a good mm-hmm. amount of that garbage was also hurled towards Alana Miles' way. I think a lot of that had to do with Alana's strong personality, and I think a lot of the resistance to her had to do with the fact that she was a woman, which is patently unfair. And that's something I think that you would have witnessed firsthand, right? Uh, absolutely. I witnessed it all firsthand. I mean, it's funny, just looking back, you talk about the fact that she was... Uh, that I was such a believer in her. Well, actually, it was her belief in me that that drove me on creatively. And we had very different personalities and different ways of approaching things. Like I remember in the early days, long before she had a record deal, we'd be working on songs and, you know, we'd get something started and we were excited about it. She'd be like, this is incredible. This is amazing. This is a smash. This is going to be going to number one. It's going to win me a Grammy Award. And I'm like, well, um, you know, maybe I can finish the second verse first, you know. <laughs> But that was just, that was kind of our dynamic. You know, I was the plodding, you know, left foot, right foot guy. And she was the dream big. I mean, she had absolute, you know, sort of illusions of greatness. And some some people said delusions for years until she achieved everything that she had dreamt of and said she would, amazingly enough, including winning a Grammy Award. And I have a, a little story wow. for you for the Grammys. Oh, because, tell um, us. Well, after the Grammys were over... Uh, the Warner Group held a big party at the Roseland Ballroom, and they had all these wonderful food tables, each one from like a different part of the world, so hence different cuisine sponsored by a different division within the labels. That was cool. Mm-hmm. But we were meeting all kinds of people that night. Lots of people came up to talk to her, but two of the most memorable ones are very, very brief encounters. She and I were sitting at a tiny little table, and who should come zooming across the room made a beeline for her, but sting. No. He comes up, completely ignores me, looks at her and goes, Alana, I'm Sting. And I'm thinking, <laughs> no kidding, right? And he says, I admire your music. And with that, sort of twi- swings his head and just tacks full sail <laughs> to the right. Yeah, That was the extent. So we waited just the right amount of time till he was out of earshot and then burst out laughing. The two of us kind of falling on each other with laughter at how how funny this moment was, but it was kind of bettered a couple of minutes later when she asked me to accompany her to the bathroom. Yeah, I was her girlfriend that night. <laughs> and um, so we're, we're on our, well, you know, it was a busy night for her. So we're on our way and we get to the stairs and who's coming up the stairs but Jack Nicholson. Well, Jack steps in front of Alana and does the slowest up-and-down take you've ever seen. <laughs> now, she was decked. I mean, she had her rock and roll finery on that night. She looked fantastic. That's great. And he looks at her, and he's nodding his head up and down, and he's going, well, 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 what have we here? <laughs> right? 
<laughs> and uh, she just sort of gives gives a big, you know, whoop, like a harumph, right? Yeah. And then storms down the stairs, me me in tow, laughing <laughs> myself silly. But you know, it was stuff like that that made the night, you know, particularly memorable, as well as the fact that she won the Grammy. Well, yeah, and the Grammy was for best female rock vocal performance in 1991. That is fantastic, and you must be so proud. Oh yeah. That's Still, great. immensely. So that's my second favorite Alana Christopher story. My favorite story is from Episode 7. So if you're new to the show, go back to Season 1, Episode 7. Christopher tells the best damn Robert Plant story you will ever hear in uh. your life, guaranteed. <laughs> it's so funny. It's so great. It's an, and it's one of my favorite moments from our entire show. Christopher, I, I know that you're still friends with Alana, and that's great. You know, the next time you talk to her, give her our best. You know, we're fans, and you listen to Love Is from that first album. You listen to all the other songs. They're just fantastic. But, man, when that opening guitar and bass come on, and that shuffle beat starts on Black Velvet, uh, Adam, let's play just a few seconds of that. So right there, like, that is so incredible. And then you can almost see the haze coming off the road when she starts singing Mississippi in the middle of a dry spell. And those <laughs> lyrics are great. And musically, it's great. And I know that you, co- you. you co-wrote the song with... With Dave Tyson, her producer, yeah. Right. And, you know, I, I sometimes think that people don't think about the artistry that goes into just one song. But if you're going to listen to just one song today, go back and listen to that song, Black Velvet by Alana Miles, and just admire what went into that song and how good her performance is and how good the songwriting is and how good the musicianship is on that song. Thank you so much, sir. Okay, Christopher, here we are. Here we are on Famous Lost Words. And the other day, I sent you a clip called When Rock Stars Attack with Roger Hodgson. <laughs> and, and it's yeah. so funny. You said, okay, he did not attack there. He only slightly kind of wrinkled his face when, when he was talking about a song. So here he is being asked, what did you think of the Goo Goo Dolls version of Give a Little Bit? <laughs> well, I, ha- I had mixed feelings. Um I was happy they were doing the song. I mean, I liked the band, but um, the spirit, I mean, I was a little little myth that they changed a few of the lyrics, <laughs> being the writer of the song. But um, it was, it's, I, I like the version in many ways. I mean, to me, the, the spirit of the song is somewhat different to the, the, the way they translated it. Uh, it's kind of, in a way, of all the songs I've written, it's kind of my baby. So um, maybe I'm a little too attached to it. But I was very happy that... Um, I'm, I'm happy that any anyone covers covers my songs if they do them well, and, and it was a pretty good version. <laughs> Time for the old soft pillow. <laughs> <laughs> really, when rock stars mildly attack, that's Roger yeah. Hodgson on famous lost words. <laughs> <laughs> when they gently disagree, when they beg to differ. When rock stars beg to differ, I think that's what we'll call the segment. You know, and it's funny because. What he was really upset at is they had changed a few words. And it's not that they changed 
the words, they took out some and replaced them with words that were already originally in the song. It's mm. really minor, but he was, quote-unquote, miffed by that whole thing. But you also know that he loves the song being revived, and you also know that he loves what that means for income. When an artist of that era and of that popularity, like the Goo Goo Dolls, when they cover your song, uh, that's going to mean a lot to you financially as well. It's interesting because technically, of course, to make any changes whatsoever to the content of a song... Uh, you have to get the permission of the original writers. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, But I'm wondering, in this case, because it was more sort of a shifting around of existing lyrics, if they managed to skirt that issue. Ah, and that would explain why he was miffed by it. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Roger Hodgson going whole hog (laughs) on the Goo Goo Dolls. (laughs) All right. While we're at it, more When Rock Stars Attack. And we've got two clips, two attacks, one drummer. The artist that we're talking oh, about right man. now is Karen Carpenter, right? Like of Top of the World, Karen Carpenter. Let's hear that song right now, Adam. I'm on the top of the world, looking down on creation and the only explanation I can find. <laughs> There's Karen Carpenter and the Carpenters. She's singing Top of the World. And here she is taking to task... Casey Kasem for something that he got wrong on his show, America Top 40. Here's Karen Carpenter on When Rock Stars Attack. Top of the World was written at the same time that Goodbye to Love was. Uh-huh. And, uh, well, it was on the Song for You album. Right. And um, I heard, I can't remember where, oh, it was on um, American Top 40 the other day that I heard Casey Kasem say that uh, our new single was uh, really what he was saying was that we copied Lynn Anderson's. And if he bothered to look, I mean, it really made me mad because she took our record. I mean, it was completely the opposite way around. Our Top of the World was out a complete year before Lynn Anderson did ours. And it it just really burns you up when he's saying we're covering her record when she covered ours. Ooh, them fighting words. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Part two of Karen Carpenter. She's got a lot of spirit, that girl. Oh, she's great. Part two of Karen Carpenter when rock stars attack is Karen Carpenter versus a common housefly while she's drumming (laughs) for the song Top of the World. And yes, it's even better than the clip before. Karen Carpenter when rock stars attack. The other night in Top of the World, I get going and I'm halfway through the first verse and here comes this stupid fly. We played in this place. I've never seen more flies in my life. I think they all came north for the winter. And it's, I'm going in everything I want the world to be. And I hear, and I said, oh, no, not now. Wait until I stop, you know. So I get halfway through it, and he lands on my snare drum. So I figure, well, it's either me or him, you know. So right when I get into the chorus, I've got the pickup, and it goes, I'm on the top of the world looking. And it goes, boom. So I figured, well, this is it. So I took my brush, and on the downbeat, I smashed it flat. Then here it is laying on my drum in five million pieces, and I, I broke up. I couldn't sing the tune. Because there's, there's a fly laying on my hi-hat and a wing on my brush, and then I had to figure out how to get it off. And I just destroyed the tune. But it, stuff like that, when it happens, is so funny. Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> 
she that was, is, I love that. That's so I, good. You know what? I didn't realize that she was so funny. I had no idea either because their music is, you know, a bit on the saccharine side, right? There are moments when she, there's honestly, in my opinion, there's only one moment in which Karen Carpenter reached kind of her full potential as a great interpreter of music, and that's the song Superstar, where there's passion in it, and it's a beautifully written song written by Leon Russell. And it is a great, mm. great song and a great performance. So I'm not a huge fan of the other stuff, like uh, Close to You and Top of the World and all those other songs. But You don't like Rainy Days on Mondays, Tom? <laughs> oh, come on. man. And when they, did they, what Beatles song they do? Is it Ticket to Ride? Ticket to Ride, oh, yeah. Dear and Lord. you know what? I think that was the first thing that I heard of theirs. And actually, I kind of liked it. Okay. Okay. We're going to have to do a whole segment on songs we hate to love. So perhaps that will mm. come up on that. But so I had no idea, based on their music, that she was actually funny and kind of wry with her sense of humor. And the fact that she says, she looks at the fly and basically says, okay, it's either him or me. <laughs> What's it going to be? <laughs> and she nails this, the, the poor fly with a drumstick and then brushes it off halfway through the song. When rock stars attack, Karen Carpenter of The Carpenters on Famous Lost Words. All right, that does it for this week. Special thanks to Adam Karsh, our producer. Our executive producer is Rob Farina. Don't forget, please get caught up on past episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app or on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook at Famous Lost Words and on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod. 